The energy transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the path to net zero. We've said it once, but we'll say it again. 2022 was one of the most pivotal years in the history of energy. The war in Ukraine raised energy security issues caused by reliance on Russian gas. China's dominance of the solar and energy storage supply raised questions around national security in the U.S. European and North American policymakers have acted in an attempt to reshape supply chains. Arguably, the biggest and most significant step to alter the energy landscape was President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. It'll provide tax credits to incentivize local production of renewables. What else does the IRA mean for the renewable energy manufacturers? Today on Horizons, we're going to look at the impact on manufacturers, developers, and investors from the multi-billion dollar investment plan that's landed in the U.S. I'm joined to discuss this and more by Daniel Liu, Head of Asset Commodity Performance at Wood Mackenzie. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. We're really excited to have you for this topic. I am a big fan of the bottom line upfront. So what is one key takeaway from today's conversation you think all listeners should leave with? Thanks, Liz. I guess it says in the title, get ready for the boom. This Inflation Reduction Act is probably the most monumental policy that we've ever seen in the history of renewable energy dating back since uh, wind turbines and solar panels were first installed into the ground. And it has huge potential to completely transform the United States supply chain. And more than that, one interesting fact about the Inflation Reduction Act is the response from other markets. So the European Union, Ursula von der Leyen has uh, announced a similar policy called the Green Industry Net Zero Act. Details yet to be finalized. And of course, we've seen responses from China, and certainly we're expecting further responses from the manufacturing centers at the center of the renewable supply chain from Southeast Asia. So yes, I could say that this is a hugely monumental act that has great potential to completely revamp global supply chains and greatly accelerate renewable energy installation growth around the world. Wow, I'm very excited to get into that more today. Also joining us today is Dr. Melissa Lott, the Director of Research at the Center of Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Melissa, we know you from the Energy Gang and welcome back to your second Horizons. Liz, it's great to be back. Great to be recording today with you and Daniel and looking forward to this discussion. I have the same question that I asked Daniel. What do you think is your big key takeaway from this discussion? Big key takeaway is what I'll say is for people who are listening, you know, the things that Daniel said, all very important. The knock-on impacts, like what the IRA has catalyzed, are huge. And so understanding what's in this act is really important. And what's in it is a ton of carrots and very few sticks. And it's also a strong industrial (laughs) policy. So understanding those two key things and then seeing how that is reflected in the choices other countries are already making and other regions are already making is a really clear indicator of what we might expect when it comes to decarbonization policy more broadly. Awesome. So speaking of carrots, I want to jump right into the first question. And so there's two parts of the IRA that are significant for equipment manufacturers, tax credits and incentives. What exactly are these and what are they hoping to deliver? It's not going to be an equitable distribution of those credits. You're going to see some companies that are well positioned to do it. Some parts of the value chain, some parts of the technology across the renewable energy landscape that are going to be best placed to take advantage of those credits. Others are going to miss out. And it's great that this instrumental act has been deployed. 
we were still waiting for the implementation from the IRS and the IRS guidelines are crucial to seeing which companies have eligibility to take advantage of those credits and which companies will not. And so we can get into this uh, further down the line, but the most important thing is, is that once the IRS guidance comes out, then it will actually give insight as to which companies can do what. And for anybody in the energy transition, this is going to be a key part of this strategy going forward for the next five, 10 years. Yes, there's a lot of credits out there. So the whole point is that it's great that there's a lot of these credits and tax incentives out there, and it's going to spur a lot of investment into the manufacturing supply chain and development. But the point is, accessing those credits is still at the behest of the IRS, and the IRS guidance is critical here. So any kind of planning, any kind of strategy, any kind of investment decision, all is hinging on this IRS guidance. And once it comes out, you have to be aware as an investor or any kind of strategy planning that the credits expire in 2032 and to set up the manufacturing supply chains could easily take up to six years for anything like solar panels where the key critical components just aren't made in the United States at the moment. Panel assemblies made in the United States, but wafers aren't, neither are sales or ingots. So there's a whole rejigging of supply chains necessary to get the manufacturing capacity up to speed to even supply just a fraction of the domestic demand in the United States. It's a tall order, but there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of thinking to do as well if you are a strategy or investment manager of some kind. And so I think, Liz, when we look at section, was it 13502? That's the advanced manufacturing production credit that's in this. There are some really strong signals and also a lot of indicators of the challenges that we're going to be facing in the next several years. If we're looking to rejig our supply chains and the production of these materials, we have to think about how long does it take to permit a mine? How long does it take to actually build refining capacity, to build it into the thing you ultimately want, all the steps in the chain? And so when you look at, for instance, the applicable critical minerals that are included in this manufacturing production credit, we're talking about things that we've all heard of, like aluminum, chromium, cobalt, graphite, lithium, manganese, nickel, yttrium. I mean, just keep going. And when you look at the overall transition, so not just in renewable energy production, but also beyond that, when we're talking about electric vehicles, et cetera, these are critical components across the board. And so when we look at those financial incentives, as Daniel said, it's going to take some time for those supply chains to rejig. And actually, if we want them to shift in a time frame that will make a big dent in terms of emissions reductions, we need to move faster than we're really set up to move right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just following up the comment from Liz's, one of the minerals you mentioned, nickel, I understand that right now there is no nickel mines suitable in the United States up and running to supply the entirety of the electric vehicle slash energy storage battery supply chain. It's all imported, mostly imported from Southeast Asia, China. But, you know, nickel is a critical component of energy storage. And we have a significant something in the vicinity of just in energy storage alone, including batteries, 69 gigawatts a year needed on average out to 2031 with a peak of 139 gigawatts at some point in the mid-decade. And right now, the battery raw material supply is just a fraction of that number. It's just a tiny, tiny component. So like Melissa said, it's going to take a lot of rejigging, thinking about how to set up the manufacturing supply chain. We're going to have significant questions about whether even refining capacity is going to be able to get up to speed and running to supply all this monstrous demand. So yeah, it's a tall order. That's actually a great point. Speaking of competition with China, according to the report, 70% of PV modules and 80% of lithium batteries are made in China. 
How is the IRA going to increase the U.S.'s competitiveness with regards to China? Is there going to be a lot of local investment or is this going to be more of a a top-down type thing? It's a very good question. We've seen uh, several announcements in PV module manufacturing, some significant ones out there with quite a lot of groundbreaking being proposed. So these are quite firm orders, something in the vicinity of an additional 10 gigawatts of manufacturing capacity plus an additional 30 to 40 gigawatts of what we call tentative capacity. These are announcements that, in our view, are speculative at best. Maybe, if we're lucky, only half of them will actually come to fruition. But on a realistic scenario, at best, these announcements will fall somewhere in the vicinity of 30 to 40 gigawatts, if we're lucky, and the demand for modules is somewhere in the vicinity of 50 gigawatts on average out to 2032, according to our forecasts. So. Again, this is a tall order. Now, if the IRS guidance enforces a more stringent interpretation of U.S. manufacturing all the way down to the subcomponent raw materials, minerals processing level, each layer of supply chain componentry adds an additional two years to the manufacturing supply setup. And that's just to get the manufacturing capacity up and running. Then you have to worry about getting everything to maturity. And then by that point, 2032, which is when the credits expire, comes up really, really fast. So... Again, it's all down to the strategy and decisions that you have to make as a, a manufacturing company. You know, going back to your question, Liz, about whether it's a top-down or a bottom-up approach, I could see a call for both. Uh, we have some very clever colleagues, a lot smarter than I am, looking into the supply chain who are tracking these announcements. And there's a lot of manufacturing being built out. But again, it's a question of whether they can get up to speed in time and to supply the domestic demand that is needed. Yeah, that seems like it could be a challenge. Any thoughts from you here, Melissa? It's just the time frame thing that Daniel said. Yeah. That's the thing that's at the front of my mind. So when you look at 2032, okay, it's 2023 now. Uh, if we're looking at permitting, getting a mine online, and we're talking about 13, 14 years would be what we would typically see from like conception to actually having it up and running and mature and putting what it needs to be putting into the system, into the system. It doesn't work. It also doesn't work for the pathways we're looking at to reach our emissions reductions by mid-century. But when you back up from there, what does the pathway to net zero actually look like? So this goes back to non-technical barriers. You can put all these financial incentives in place, but you've got to get all the non-technical barriers, the siting, the permitting, the markets, all of it aligned, or else you're not going to see the speed that you need to actually have these things come to fruition. But it is a clear signal of prioritizing domestic production of things, of stuff to support this transition and support renewables. That is something that is absolutely clear in the IRA, supporting domestic and supporting, you know, kind of allied based production of these materials, including the equipment. And so when you look at the materials and where they're coming from, I mean, you talked about nickel, Daniel. So you've got what, Indonesia, Philippines and Russia as the big suppliers. Russia, much less. I think it's about a third of the equivalent that comes out of Indonesia. But those are the three big ones. But then let's talk about graphite. So we're talking about China huge. And then Mozambique and Brazil for the production of that. If you take China off the board, back to the competition piece of this, Liz, or you take even pieces of that off the board, massive impacts on that at a time when we're trying to expand the production of these of these types of materials. Adding to that, it's not just about the raw materials. It's also about the technical equipment. The manufacturing equipment for PV modules all the way down to cell Wi-Fi ingot level, most of it comes out of China. China's just announced a restriction on export and uh, certainly in response to the Inflation Reduction Act, even though they won't admit it. And not just that, the technical expertise, the know-how, the human capital, that's not something that's in the United States yet. The United States lost it a few years ago, whatever was there. And now we're starting from zero all over again. 
all that, not just the minerals, not just the equipment, but also the human capital has to be built up, which is great for US manufacturing returning back to the shores. But again, it's a tall order for supplying the demand in the United States. I would say I wouldn't characterize the workforce as being zero in the United States, but I absolutely would not dispute the fact that we need to build it up a lot more if we're going to be building up this domestic capacity. But that's more broadly around the world as well. Like the capacity that we need in our workforce, the trained people across all different types of skill sets that we need to actually reduce emissions on the timescale we're talking about, that's a challenge for everyone, including here in the United States. So from an economic perspective, we talked a little bit about supply and demand, but what are your thoughts on the developments in supply and demand for renewables equipment we can expect this year or even in the next few years? When we look at all these you know, challenges to the massive scale up of renewables that we're faced with, so all the non-technical barriers, all the supply chain you know, questions yeah. that we've already touched on, still when we're looking at, let's say, the 30% solar investment tax credit through 2025 that we're looking at, if we're looking at projections just really near term, the numbers I'm looking at, Daniel, I'm curious if you're seeing any different ones. Is suggesting that the law is going to spur maybe 500, 550 gigawatts of new utility scale clean power by 2030. I mean, these are like very significant numbers that it's actually spurring. Our forecasts are showing very similar numbers. I think it's from memory, I have to double check this, but almost a tripling of the existing capacity right now in utility scale. So it's building what was done in the United States for the last 10 years and then timesing it by three in the span of seven years. And let's be realistic, it's more like six years because we're still waiting for the IRS guidance and then people have to get the policies in place and then people have to get the permissions and then, you know, it keeps ticking over. I can't imagine too many companies taking advantage of tax credits right now. I can tell you for a fact that having spoken to a lot of developers out there, a lot of them are having trouble just trying to source the equipment from United States manufacturing facilities alone. And these are some of the really big names out there, the ones who would technically be the first rabbits at the carrot bowl. And if they can't source enough equipment to beat the domestic content requirements, the 45X requirements, then nobody can. And that's the truth. Yeah, I don't know about you, Daniel, but one of the most active conversations that I'm a part of, but also, you know, watching and observing really closely is around, it's not actually solar, it's offshore wind. (laughs) And like, how are we going to actually think about, okay, we're about to finalize financing or begin construction here in the next, you know, bit here around, I think it's 5,400 megawatts. So almost six gigs of offshore wind. And this is an interesting one to your points of like, what is it going to take to actually pull off the construction of this, much less the massive expansion and the ramp up of the industry that is needed when you look at projections on the most cost-effective pathways to getting to net zero by mid-century? Let's take a minute and focus on wind. We touched on offshore wind in the May edition of Horizons last year, so do revisit that if you haven't heard about it already. There's a really good primer about what some of the terminology means too. What advantages does the U.S. industry have over other global manufacturers? And is the IRA going to help that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think uniquely because wind technology is just a heavy, large piece of equipment, the towers are easily 100 meters, 300 feet for our American listeners. Blades are being something in the vicinity of 150 meter, 600 feet diameter rotors are quite common now for offshore and onshore slightly less. Gearboxes and drivetrains are something the size of an Abrams tank now. So 
The biggest advantage that the United States manufacturing base has right now is logistics. Costs a lot to ship equipment from low-cost countries. Blades, unfortunately, being one of those that wasn't shielded by logistics as much. And so a lot of facilities have been shuttered and mothballed and sent to Mexico instead. But nacelles are all primarily made in, when I say made, assembled in the United States with imported components. Towers are all primarily United States manufactured. So this is where the key advantages are for United States onshore wind. With offshore wind, we still are wait and see, but given the amount of backer orders coming from United States manufacturing facilities for things like cables, monopoles, foundations, blades, it seems to be that a lot of companies are weighing those logistics costs as well as part of their pricing and purchasing considerations. And I'll flag two things when it comes to offshore and onshore. Offshore, we still need to figure out this Jones Act thing. So the Jones Act, just for those who aren't familiar with it, it was passed in the wake of the First World War to boost U.S. shipping industry. And what it says is that any cargo traveling by sea between two U.S. ports has to sail on an American-owned ship built in the U.S. with a majority crew of U.S. citizens. And so within that, the minute you've got that tower going into place and you're now the U.S. on that offshore wind platform, it creates all types of logistical challenges. On those vessels, the Jones Act vessels, our view is that AMPC specifically provided for Jones Act vessels is not enough to make them cost competitive with where the typical offshore wind vessel comes from right now, from China, East Asia, and Europe. So even taking that into account, it's going to raise your costs. So I think what we're going to see is some rather interesting ways to play with the Jones Act requirements to get the offshore wind vessels moving. Yeah, I know certainly when I'm talking to offshore wind developers and, you know, the optimization around logistics and what is delivered when and how you stay in compliance, but also use what resources available to you. It's a complex and a huge part of their practical pathway to having successful projects. It's a top of mind for them. The onshore piece of this that I'll find is interesting is all the technologies Daniel's talking about, these huge offshore wind turbines. We're now looking at ways to actually be able to bring them onshore. And I'm following a number of interesting companies that are using, you know, our helicopter technology to actually fly these things in. Because when you're looking at, I know yeah. I'm sitting here in Texas, how are you going to get that blade around that bend? We're already kind of struggling with the size we have now. Well, if you can fly it, you've overcome that challenge. These types of things, you don't shut down roads and, and all of that. So just interesting to see how those two parts of you know, the wind industry, we'll often say wind, but offshore, onshore are actually complementing yeah. each other. Um, one thing that I will say on the offshore wind thing is that even if you can bring those turbines on to land, still in some parts of the U.S., and I'm thinking about big swaths of the northeastern corridor especially, we still are really looking at offshore to be a big source of power and renewable power to be able to bring into those, you know, highly dense areas. What effect, if anything, will the AMPC, that's the Advanced Manufacturing Production Credits, what are those going to have in the wind regime? For manufacturing or for demand? I'd say from the manufacturing side. Some context here, with the onshore wind, and uh, since they're all the same companies, onshore and offshore wind manufacturers, you've got Siemens, Gamesa, General Electric, Vestas, those are the big three, Nordex is entering the market. Traditionally, those companies have had declining profit margins. Pricing dynamics in the wind space is heavily competitive. So equipment sales are eroding these manufacturers' profit margins. So in our view, the AMPC will provide some kind of pathway forward for these manufacturers to recoup those profit margins back. So well, when I spoke at the beginning where different companies 
a better position than others to take full advantage of the different parts of the Inflation Reduction Act. This is one of those examples where the wind company, and we know there's a domestic shortage at the moment, and given what we've been hearing from our developer colleagues in the space, whoever can get whatever equipment, they will just get it. This is where the wind manufacturers can recover quite a lot of the declining profit margins and take full advantage of the AMPC to, let's put it bluntly, fill up the coppers a little bit. So let's shift gear here a little bit and talk about solar. Now that we've talked about wind, with solar, current plans to expand panel supply will not be nearly enough to meet demand, and costs for PV panels can be 32% more expensive than Southeast Asian counterparts in the U.S. Are there parts of the IRA specifically or other broad policy impacts that may affect this? Yeah, so top of mind for me is actually around solar tariffs and solar tariff waivers. And I don't know if folks have been following in January of this year, bipartisan group of lawmakers in the U.S. House of Representatives actually introduced a resolution to repeal the suspension of import tariffs on solar panels from, I think it was Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam, which is roughly 80%. I think that's right, Daniel, 80% of U.S. panel supplies. And so within that, yeah. I'm watching those dynamics because how that plays out could have a big impact on the question you're asking, Liz. It's worth noting that when the preliminary anti-dumping circumvention, the Oxing rulings came about, it had the potential to impact up to 50 gigawatts worth of manufacturing capacity. And it's not to say that all those manufacturing capacities will be impacted with a tariff on top, but they will all have to prove that they are not circumventing the Uyghur Forced Labor Provisions Act. So you can imagine that any company that is importing this equipment from said four countries Melissa just mentioned, will have to add bureaucratic and administrative burden on top and also trying to find a way to circumvent the withhold release orders that have impacted supply for the last two years. Now it's good to hear that a bipartisan group of lawmakers are thinking about repealing some of those tariffs. But, you know, politically, it's a question of uh, which one appeals more to your manufacturing base or to your local community who could see a manufacturing center built up and provide jobs in that local area. So that's the balancing act that I see coming about. And it's going to be an interesting space. There's going to be long, lengthy discussions and debates. The IRS guidance on the eligibility requirements will have an impact here. And I'm pretty sure this is not going to be the last we're going to see of the anti-dumping circumvention tariffs and the Uyghur Forced Labor Provisions Act playing a part in the solar manufacturing supply chain. You want to say that last point right there, Daniel, around forced labor, around what are we willing to accept when it comes to the supply of the things we're using here in the U.S. is a big question. And right now, I mean, this goes into if you look at supply chain and components and what's currently controlled by areas, including I know one that's been in the headlines is around Chinese manufacturers and this link to forced labor and genocide. And okay, so what are we willing to accept here in the U.S.? And where are our hard lines where we say, you know, Cheap or not, existing capacity or not, we're going to make investments to move away from this. Yeah, and it actually speaks to a whole movement that I personally am a big believer in, the just energy transition, making sure that the energy transition benefits the most people without hurting or rather hurting the minimum amount of people. It's a very worthwhile goal. The other questions, just segueing onto that, is getting lithium battery, let's say all the battery raw materials set up, the manufacturing, the refining, all that. The manufacturing and the refining of a lot of the critical minerals is quite environmentally destructive. And part of the reason why 
a lot of the equipment is sourced from, let's say, cheaper labor countries is because those cheaper labor countries also come with more lax environmental standards. Is the United States manufacturing scene prepared to waive some of these environmental standards? I think not, but that's going to add to your costs. Absolutely it will. And it will slow down the speed of deployment. So it's an ongoing question. Where do you draw the line? Where do you balance? And well, I have my personal take on this, but this is a matter for the policy experts. And within the policy experts, it goes even a step further than this. You've got the environmental impacts of the original, getting the material out of the ground, refining it, turning it into the thing you want. And then what happens once that thing is used and we have more batteries in the system, more panels in the system, and you're thinking about circularity and how can we design our policies because they're not designed this way and our regulations and all of our permitting so that, for example, you could have a mine where on site from day one, you're also creating a recycling center there. And over time, you're going to be pulling less raw things out of the ground and actually recycling and pulling that stuff out of the battery or panel or whatever it is. And getting that right takes a lot of foresight in terms of where we're going to see this industry evolve over time. And it also has some big geopolitical questions. How much of this are we going to want to be doing in the United States? And just to layer it on, it's got all the justice questions and equity questions that you put out there, Daniel. So this is complex and requires a lot of people at a table. If it was easy, we would have figured this out already. This is a complex. (laughs) I mean, we're making the same problem right now. One great thought case is the onshore wind space where all those wind turbine blends are coming down and we have no way to recycle them at the moment, or rather it's too costly, economically unfavorable to do so. So we're just putting them into the ground. That's not the right way we should be thinking about this. But I was going to add on to that layer of circularity. I think one problem that's going to come up is that we actually don't know what the circularity is going to look like in terms of the Mm. whole value chain supply chain process. As an industry, we're all going to make mistakes. I think that's first and foremost. We're going to make mistakes. In hindsight, 10, 15 years down the line, we're going to look back and say we could have done this better. We should have done policy better. So this is not to say that this is something we shouldn't pursue, but it's just a heads up, I suppose, to the industry that it's not going to be perfect and we're going to have to learn how to mitigate those mistakes as they come up. Absolutely, which takes that foresight and flexibility. So when we look at all the different technologies we're using as we make mistakes, that could create near-term shifts that creating policies and systems that don't prevent those shifts or don't disincentivize those shifts when they need to happen is a really important one. So it's saying more technology agnostic than perhaps we have with policies in the past. So we're actually coming to the end of our podcast segment. What is the big topic here left to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? Daniel, I'll start with you. Sure. It's the response from other countries. The European Union is not only just putting out their own policy initiative, but also potentially taking this to WTO and arbitration. They're still negotiating, of course, but I think the argument that they have right now is that this is unjustly providing advantages to domestic manufacturing and domestic investment, and therefore sucking away investment and potential trade economy from the European Union and other politics around the world with heavy manufacturing bases and renewable energy. So that's a big one, is that response and the ongoing negotiations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, when you think about all the elephants in the room that come with an act like this, which is large and has broad sweeping impacts. I'm thinking about all the conversations coming out of Davos, you know, that was just last month, and this made in America law conversation and what it means in terms of what other countries are going to do in terms of their policies. But also let's get into these World Trade Organization rules. Like, does locally produced content violate some of those rules? I mean, these are conversations that are ongoing. Like, how far can it go as it was structured? And if nothing else, it is sending a clear signal of a, I would term it, and I hate to use this term, I just haven't found a better one, 
which is a deglobalization focus when it comes to these supply chains and the build out of all this stuff. It's saying, you know what, panels, that's fine. They have to come from a smaller set of countries, you know, a smaller set of partners, a friendly set of countries, what have you. And that's a strong signal that I think will have reverberations. And we're already seeing that in terms of the EU response. Yeah. And I think that term you use, deglobalization, actually, I've been seeing that an awful lot in a lot of the major trade publications, financial trade publications, I should say, Economist, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal. They're all talking about the impending deglobalization, not just of renewable energy, but all over and the knock-on effects of other parts of the manufacturing supply chain. I want to add to that with a question of my own, which is, is this the most efficient way, cost-efficient and deployment-efficient way of building out domestic renewable supply chain and deployment of renewable energy. Uh, certainly, any economist can tell you that putting up these kind of barriers and creating these deglobalizations does create a natural inefficiency in your supply chain. So it's going to be an interesting time for all of us. Yeah, and I'll say two quick things on that. One, every one of these choices has a trade-off. Every single one of them. Globalize, deglobalize. These countries, those, I mean, all of these decisions, materials, technologies, everyone has trade-offs. But within this, I'm thinking through what choices we make in terms of finding practical pathways forward to reducing emissions. Because all the caveats we say about the IRAS side, if you look at projections, we were broadly on a track. We're at 18% emissions down compared to 2005 right now, rough numbers. And we were on track to around 25%, so halfway towards the 2030 goal of 50 to 52% that the Biden administration has put out. The IRA passes, and we're looking at upping that 25% number up to 30 to maybe even 40 45%. That's spitting distance from half. That's spitting distance from our 2030 goal. That's a massive impact. So there's economically efficient pathways and the most economically efficient pathways. And then we pile all of these real world, you know, life on the ground, trade-off conversations, community preferences, politics, like everything, and you pile it on. And this is the pathway forward. Lots of carrots, not a ton of sticks. <laughs> and yeah, we lose efficiency along the way in some cases, but we also get progress that we were not expecting to see. You know, that 25% projection, you know, it was looking to taper out after that. And now we're seeing actually potentially much sharper turn down in terms of emissions. Yeah. And I don't know if I'll be shot for this, but I think it's worth pointing out that every major market intelligence forecaster has always gotten their forecasts wrong. We've always underestimated the build out. And you know, the industry surprises us time and time again. The appetite for renewable energy is huge uh, and appetite for energy transition. Guess what? Uh, if you want to talk about the left versus right divide, some of the most renewables heavy places are in conservative areas of the United States. So there's appetite across the divide to go through this and provide what we would call a more just energy transition and energy equity for all communities across the world. So, you know, Melissa's figures they should give hope to the industry. We are in touching distance and we say eight years is around the corner, but eight years is also a long time. Things do change year by year. So with that, I think that's a great note to leave it on. Thank you so much, Melissa and Daniel for joining. Melissa, where can listeners learn more about the work you and your team are doing? The Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. We have all of our publications that we publish through the center are free online on our website, but also you can listen to one of our two podcasts. So if you are wanting to go deep diving into the different topics of the day, you can listen to the Columbia Energy Exchange, which is hosted by our director, Jason Bordoff and Bill Loveless. You can also listen to the podcast that I do called The Big Switch, which is breaking down some kind of elemental ideas. How do we get to zero in power? What are the technology to use? What are the technical and non-technical barriers to deploying these things? 
That sounds great. Thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to next time you're on the podcast. Great to be here. And Daniel, it was great to be on the pod for the first time with you. You too. Thank you very much, Melissa. And thank you very much, Liz. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing a lot of what you talked about in the Horizons Report. Where can listeners learn more about the work that you and your Woodmac team are doing? We have a great portal called the Power and Renewables portal on Wood Mackenzie. Listeners can subscribe to our services or purchase some of the insights. And we actually have a lot of really great free articles, including the Horizons piece that was written earlier this month. Uh, you can see it at woodmac.com forward slash horizons. Two components of the IRA are significant. The Advanced Manufacturing Credits, AMPC, and the Domestic Content Requirement, or DCR, threshold. The AMPC and DCR will provide tax credits to incentivize U.S. renewable project developers to buy materials produced locally. Together, this spells boom time for U.S. renewable manufacturers. By recouping costs in an era of declining profit margins, providing bonuses to purchase equipment locally, and planning for changing demand in future decades, the IRA could rapidly change the renewable sector for good. Thank you for joining us on the January episode of the Horizons podcast. Thanks to Daniel and Melissa also for joining us. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and we'll see you on the next episode.